This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. So good evening, everybody, and it's very nice to see you all. It's nice to be here, nice to have arrived here. And thank you to Vimala Massey, who is the trusted driver. I woke up on Friday morning at half past four. Sorry. <laughs> and I thought, shall I put the radio in? And I did, against my better judgment. And it was... Um, whatever the special programme that was in through the night for the referendum <coughs> and it was James Norte I think I couldn't listen long enough to really find out because the minute I switched it on I heard him saying something to this woman about well what happens now that leave have won and I was like no this cannot be true so I switched the radio off but I couldn't quite drop it so I know Wi-Fi was down in the community so I was at quarter to five I had showered, dressed and going to sit in the library block so that I could wind myself up on Facebook and listen to the, the results so what worried me about it well there's a lot of things I'm not even going to talk about that particular thing because I've no idea what people here voted and I trust that many people voted differently from me for good reason and some people probably voted the same as me for bad reason oh sorry Helen so yeah so it's not even to do really with what people voted what really really worried me or still worries me some days later is how divided people have been uh, before the election before the referendum rather and after the referendum the thing that worried me was particularly just suddenly we seem to be in this extraordinarily polarised divided nation and uh, you know I felt quite strongly about it I was quite devastated by the result but you know I also respect that people made choices for all sorts of different reasons and I watched some programmes where people were talking about why they'd voted whichever way they'd voted and I was listening to some fishermen from Sunderland talking about why they'd chosen to vote to stay, to leave, because of the fisheries and agriculture, all sorts of things that I don't really understand. And I felt for them because I could feel that they were genuinely talking about hardship and that that hardship drove them to thinking that this was going to be a good decision. Now, I don't know yet. We don't know yet what's going to happen. But I think what I wanted to talk about more than the actuality of that particular referendum was just how divided the nation has become around that and how polarised a world we live in. So as well as keeping up with the... I'm a little bit of a news junkie and I sometimes don't think it does me that much good, to be honest. Every now and again I take a little vow to myself to stop watching the news quite as obsessively as I sometimes do. And it lasts for a short time. But I particularly follow the news in Latin America because I have quite strong, I have strong connections there, particularly in Mexico and Venezuela, which are both countries which at the moment are in absolute turmoil. And Venezuela looked like quite recently that it was on the verge of a civil war. It might not be, but there was definitely enough tension happening between the ruling party and the opposition parties to kind of cause real concern for people living there. And Mexico, you might have seen in the news recently, there was a teacher strike. During the teacher strike, the police just opened fire and I think they killed 30-odd people. 
it seemed for no reason, again, don't know the circumstances, but it just seemed like a very, very big response to something not that big. So basically I was thinking this Friday, I was thinking, okay, I'm going to go and give a talk about engaged Buddhism. And how do I feel about that at this precise moment? And how, you know, and what I, I kind of felt, well, I'll be completely honest, what I felt was despair, anger, upset, sadness, arrogance, had a certain arrogant response, which was how on earth could people be so not like me, etc, um, etc. Et but I thought the real question is how do we respond, whichever of those sort of things upset us, wor you know, worry us, whatever those things are in the world that we're in touch with at the moment, how do we as Buddhists respond to that? So I thought that's the question really, isn't it, for a talk tonight. I think the talk's called The Path to Engage, something like that. I looked in your website, <laughs> and that's what it said. So I thought, and one thing that I wanted to say was, and maybe I'm exaggerating, maybe I'm, a, you know, maybe I'm dramatizing, but I think the way the world is at the moment, if I had not found the Dharma when I found it, I don't know if I would want to be alive. Now that might, as I say, it might sound like a real exaggeration and really over the top, but I do get quite affected by things that I see happening around me. <clears throat> but fortunately I did find the Dharma many years ago, and here we are in BAM, Buddhist Action Month. So it's great to actually be able to you know, will that with the despair, the anger, etc., etc., to actually take the time to consider what does it mean, Buddhist Action Month in the front of things, you know, facing things, sorry, that's not very English, is it? Uh, when having to face things that are happening in the world around us. So I thought I wanted to talk about engaging in three different ways. I wanted to talk about how to engage personally or even psychologically. I wanted to talk about how to engage politically or socially, and then I wanted to talk about how to engage through a dharmic lens with world issues. Okay, so it's quite a big uh, picture. So, personally, I mean, they're not separate, obviously, but I, wanted, I thought it would be neat to look at them under those sort of particular three headings. So in terms of personally, well, I thought the, the main thing for a Buddhist to do, I guess, when faced with something that affects us, is to work with our mental states. I'm sorry, it's Buddhism 101, and you're all sitting there grinning at me, because it's so obvious. But nevertheless, sometimes it's worth repeating the obvious, no? Because I think it can be very overwhelming to open ourselves up to the effect that world events can have on us, whether they're national or local or whether they're global. It can be very overwhelming. But as Buddhists, we're very lucky, or as a Buddhist, I feel very lucky to have specific ways to work with my mental states. Before I got involved in Buddhism, and some of you have heard my story various times, you'll know that I was quite involved in left-wing politics. And I'd come to the point where I realised that I, I can articulate this now, I couldn't have articulated it at the time, but I was part of the problem rather than part of the solution. Because being quite involved in politics for me was an exercise in us and them. It was oppositional. It was, I was not that, whatever that, particularly that was. So, and I didn't really know how to work with the mental states that I'd get into. Mainly anger, I have to say, that tends to be my default position when faced with something I don't like. 
I tend to get angry rather than say distressed or despairing. They're the same thing, but my particular response, I'm an extrovert, so it tends to come out. And one of the things about becoming a Buddhist was that I thought, wow, I've got methods. There are things I can actually do to work with mental states. I think before that I just thought, you have mental states. Well, I wouldn't have even called them mental states. I was mental and I had states. <laughs> and that was about as close as it got. So, you know, I'd, if you were angry, you were just angry. What's the problem, you know? Or if I was sad, I was sad or you know, if I was whatever, so I would just either get drunk or get stoned or something like that. That was my way of dealing with it. Fortunately, meeting Buddhism gave me a whole array of tools that were creative tools to work, and that it wasn't just a case of, oh, I'm angry and that's the end of the story, but I'm angry, what does that mean? What can I do with that? How do I work with that mental state? Well, as well as meditation, there's all sorts of other things we can do to help really change and shift our mental states. And um, I was thinking of the precepts, the positive precepts, which I assume everybody will be familiar with the five positive precepts. So to actually, they're not just things to stop doing, but we can actually cultivate things. So I think that's amazing that we've got things to cultivate. So we've got, we can cultivate love, we can cultivate generosity, we can cultivate simplicity in our life and contentment truthfulness and mindfulness so there's things that we can do to work with those mental states and thinking of that I was reminded of a Wendell Berry poem and I looked this up yesterday and then I think it was you put it on Facebook today or somebody put it on Facebook today no it wasn't you, somebody did, it might have been changed after. I thought that's so weird I spent yesterday quite a long time looking for it and then this morning somebody had put it on Facebook could they not have done that yesterday <laughs> and I'm going to read you this Wendell Berry poem when despair grows in me and I wake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting for their light. For a time I rest in the grace of the world and I'm free. So something of the stillness of that. And I think it's important for me anyway to remember when I do get angry, when I do get into turmoil, to actually take myself somewhere where I can feel that stillness, feel that kind of um, sense of, of being free and being careless, you know, without care. But is it enough? Well, I would suggest not. <coughs> it's a basis it's a wonderful basis, that stillness, that calmness that we can find either from taking ourselves to, to places where there is stillness or taking ourselves to internal places where we find stillness in our meditation. But I think it's important that we don't create dichotomies between contemplation and action. They have to come together. In a sense, contemplation on its own doesn't change anything externally. It might change how we relate to things, and that will then have an effect. But I'd, I'm not completely convinced it's enough. 
but nor is it quite enough to head for action without that action coming from the stillness and the quietude of, the, of cont- contemplating. So I'd say we need both. And I want to read you something. This is quite long, actually, but I think it's really, fan- really fantastic. It's a kind of poem um, written by a friend of mine called a Cooper, who some of you know. And he wrote this in 2005 when he and I and some others were doing quite a lot of work around Joanna Macy's um, work that reconnects. And we'd done quite a few workshops and I was actually staying with Cooper in Newcastle and he suddenly appeared with this bit of paper and said, read this. And he'd written these verses and he said, do you think it's worth keeping? And I was like, yeah, it's really good. (laughs) Anyway, so I'm going to read that to you. It's quite long, so just let it flow over you. So this is actually called the Shambhala Warrior Mind Training. Although in our workshops we called it the Shambolic Warrior Mind Training because we felt we were pretty shambolic warriors really that you know we didn't quite have the sort of um, grace and stillness that Shambhala might... Shambhala is a mythic um, kingdom in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. So we weren't quite there. We were a bit more shambolic than that. So... Firmly establish your intention to live your life for the healing of the world. Be conscious of it, honour it, nurture it every day. Be fully present in our time. Find the courage to breathe in the suffering of the world. Allow peace and healing to breathe out through you in return. Do not meet power on its own terms. See through to its real nature, mind and heart made. Lead your response from that level. Simplify. Clear away the dead wood in your life. Look for the heart wood and give that the first call in your time, the best of your energy. Put down the leaden burden of saving the world alone. Join with others of like mind. Align yourself with the forces of resolution. Hold in a single vision, in the same thought, the transformation of yourself and the transformation of the world. Live your life around that edge. As a bird flies on two wings, balance outer activity with inner sustenance. Follow your heart, realize your gifts. Cultivate them with diligence to offer knowledge and skill to the world. Train in non-violence of body, speech and mind. With great patience with yourself, learn to make beautiful each action, word and thought. In the crucible of meditation, bring forth day by day into your own heart the treasury of compassion, wisdom and courage for which the world longs. Sit with hatred until you feel the fear beneath it. Sit with fear until you feel the compassion beneath that. Do not set your heart on particular results. Enjoy positive action for its own sake. Rest confident it will bear fruit. When you see violence, greed and narrow-mindedness in the fullness of its power, walk straight into the heart of it, remaining open to the sky and in touch with the earth. 
staying open, staying grounded. Remember, you are the inheritor of the strengths of thousands of generations of life. Staying open, staying grounded, recall the thankful prayers of future generations are silently with you. Staying open, staying grounded, be confident in the magic and power that arise when people come together in a great cause. Staying open, staying grounded, have faith that the higher forces of wisdom and compassion will manifest through our actions for the healing of the world. When you see weapons of hate, disarm them with love. When you see armies of greed, meet them in a spirit of sharing. When you see fortresses of narrow-mindedness, breach them with the truth. When you find yourself enshrouded in dark clouds of dread, dispel them with fearlessness. When the forces of power seek to isolate us from each other, reach out with joy. In it all and through it all, hold to your intention. Let go into the music of life. Dance. So, I could just stop there. But I won't. <laughs> I found that when I first read it, and I still find reading it incredibly strongly moving. I find it very motivating. And there's so much in it, and I'm obviously not going to go through all of that, but there's so much in that about how to work together, about how to stay open, but at the same time really staying grounded. So I want to just pick out a few lines. In the crucible of meditation, bring forth day by day into your own heart the treasury of compassion, wisdom and courage for which the world longs. I think that's so lovely. And the world does long for it. You can see that. You can feel it. You can hear it. You can taste it at the moment. Everybody, I think, whatever their political colour, whatever their class background, whatever their race, their gender, their sexuality, everybody is desperate and thirsty for wisdom, love and compassion and we're so fortunate that the Dharma can actually offer those things so I think it's really important that we trust that and we believe in it we know the world longs for it we know that in a way a lot of what's happening is I think Marshall Rosenberg of NVC talks about people having suicidal strategies to get their needs met so there's a need there, but the strategies being put into place are just not going to fulfill those needs. So we can see that, can't we? We can hear it, we can feel it. So in our meditation, really allow ourselves to bring into consciousness our own deeper wisdom and compassion. And then the other two lines that really jumped out to me are sit with hatred until you feel the fear beneath it. Because so often what comes at us as hate is disguise and fear. And you can see it, you listen to people talking about why they vote in a particular way, why they, you know, why they're backing certain strategies or something. And actually when you listen, what you hear is fear. And it's so sad, it's so unnecessary, it's so insidious and it proliferates. Fear is contagious. It absolutely proliferates. <coughs> and then sit with the fear until you feel the compassion beneath that. So if we can sit with our own fear, 
and then allow ourselves to go beyond that. Often what's under that fear is also a great love for humanity. There's often a great sense of compassion underneath the fear and the anger and the hatred. So I think this is a way we can work on a more psychological or mental level with things. We can really take on board that our mental states can change. I think that's the big lesson for me to remember. This particular mental state, the one that I woke up and got very quickly into on Friday morning, can pass, has passed. And uh, that all states arise and pass. We can actually actively work towards that. And I think there is something important about acknowledging our own fear and even acknowledging our own anger and even hatred if we do have it. Because if we don't acknowledge it, it's driving from underneath. So it's important to just acknowledge what we feel about things, but that's not the end of the story. Then finding a way to shift that, not giving into it. So you'll remember, no doubt, the lines from the Dhammapada, the verses from the Dhammapada, which say, Hatred never ceases through hatred in this world. Through love alone does it cease. This is the eternal law. Hatred never ceases through hatred in this world. Through love alone does it cease. This is the eternal law. Sometimes it's quite hard to hold on to that. Sometimes it's quite hard to believe that. And I'm trying to take a little bit of a personal precept at the moment to not post things on Facebook that I think, because sometimes you come across things and they're really funny or they're really interesting, but I'm trying to be very careful about discerning what's underneath the desire to share that and what's underneath the kind of, am I just trying to get another poke at the people that I don't agree with or is there actually something in this that's useful for people to read or understand? And the humour, humour can be helpful, can't it? There have been some great cartoons this week, I have to say. But I'm not going to repeat any of them. Because quite a few of the ones that I found funny include swearing words, which of course I would not repeat in such an august group of people. So all of that is around how we work individually and how we work on that kind of mental or even psychological level. I'm sorry, every time I hear the word mental in a Glaswegian accent, it does have slightly different connotations. <laughs> so just, it means a bit mad, but kind of, you know, a bit, she could tell you later what it means. It's usually got a swear word, yeah. So that's individual, but can we help each other? Because I guess that's a big question. Is this only work that we can do individually and separately? Well, no, I don't think it is. I think we can actually help each other. I think we can really move towards each other and actually help each other catch those mental states and not feed them. You know, we do them. We have the metabhavana, don't we? Yeah. But we can also do the resentment bhavana. We can do the let's wind each other up, Bhavana. Bhavana just means to cultivate. We can cultivate all sorts of things. And we can do it collectively. You know, because I know the people that read my Facebook pages are generally speaking going to find the same things funny as I find funny. So you can kind of wind each other up a little bit, can't you? So I think on the other side of that, we can really try and help each other to catch those mental states and to really kind of shift them. I mean, not in a great big preachy kind of way or unfriending everybody <laughs> suddenly but just more kind of actually in a friendly way just kind of not colluding with those kind of uh, ways of looking at things and going back to Cooper's poem he also says 
Put down the leaden burden of saving the world alone. Join with others of like mind. Align yourself with the forces of resolution. When the forces of power seek to isolate us from each other, reach out with joy. And I think that as well as, it's almost, I could have that as our manifesto, you know, like because we do so easily separate and polarize, and it's exactly what the forces of darkness are working towards. And by that, I don't mean any particular political party or person or mayor of London or anything ex-mayor of London, I don't mean anybody in particular, but you know, the, it does feel a bit to me at the moment like we're in, we're in the right of destruction, you know? We're in a world in which chaos and destruction is pretty common, and there are different ways to respond to that. We can respond by disintegrating more, or we can bond with people through love, and that, I think, does work against the forces of disintegration. I'm a Star Wars fan, you know. I mean, the old stuff and the very new one. But I do think there is a force at work, isn't there? And we can align ourselves with a resolution to create light and to create love. Or we can just let ourselves be drawn and dragged into other states. I'm sure I've quoted this here before in talks, but there's a bit in one of the Star Wars films where one of the Jedi warriors says to his master, he says, why are the forces of darkness so much stronger than the forces of light? And his master says, they're not stronger, they're easier, faster, and more seductive. There's something in that. It's so much easier not to be ethical, quite often. You know, there's this easy slide into polarization and anger and all that. So don't let ourselves get isolated from each other. Reach out with joy and join with others of like mind. Create community. So there's an old talk of Sangharakshita given in, I think, 76. It might have been even earlier. It's called Evolution or Extinction, a Buddhist view of current world problems or current world issues. Available on Free Buddhist Audio. And um, it's a great talk, actually. It's a brilliant talk. It's one of my go-back-to, every-now-and-again talks. And in that, he, said, he talks about all the kind of proliferation of world problems. And this was, what, 40 years ago? And they definitely have not got any less in that 40 years. And he talks about how um, people think if you have a spiritual path, you're not interested in creating change. Anyway, he says... We can say that a consideration of current world problems makes it clear to us that we have before us today only two alternatives. On the one hand, there's what we can call evolution, higher evolution, spiritual development, becoming more individual. That is one alternative. And the other alternative is extinction. Doesn't mince his words. It really means that we, the human race, that is to say, individual members of the human race must develop spiritually, or sooner or later, the human race will perish. So, later in that talk, he offers four things that we can do to work against these tendencies. The first one is to find a method of personal development. And that's what I'm talking about in terms of how do we combat the mental states that we can get into through the overwhelm that we can sometimes feel. And if you're overwhelmed, you can't engage. 
So if we're actually trying to find a way of a path of engagement, the first thing we need to do is to work against that sense of overwhelm. So a method of personal development also means we end up being part of the solution rather than part of the problem. Yeah? The second thing that he suggests that you do is create community or find a community of like-minded people. And he goes on to say in that lecture, it's very, very hard to fight against, um, th this is me rephrasing, paraphrasing, but to fight against the depth and the kind of strength of the forces of darkness, if I may use that terminology, the forces of power rather than love, to really fight against them, one cannot do it alone. It's too big. They're too big. So creating community, coming together with people who you really trust and who share your values, the values that actually will create a better society. I do believe that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts and that people working together can create so much more than the same number of people working individually. So, and the third and fourth that he suggests are really interesting. The third thing that he suggests we can do is to withdraw our energy from anything that's working against spiritual development. Talks about the group, group factors. Um, anywhere, combat the things that you see that, you know, withdraw your energy. Be very, very careful about where you choose to put your energy. And then he says, but there'll be some things you cannot withdraw from. You just have to do them and be in them. In which case, he says, influence them for the better. So it's a really good little, neat little set. So find a method of personal development, create or find a community that will support those values, and then withdraw from anything you come across in the world that does not support those values. If you can't withdraw, influence them for the better. So that brings us to the second area that I wanted to look at. The area of how to work against, um, how to, to respond, as it were, to the issues of the world, world problems, world affairs, uh, on a more political or social level. We need to be working in our mental states, whatever happens, yeah? And we need to support each other to do that. But I do think also we, it's important to act. We are acting all the time. So even if you think you're not acting, you are acting in the sense that you're in relationship. You're in relationship with other people. We buy things. We eat things. We have a relationship with the world, and that relationship impacts on the world. We do not live in a bubble. So everything we do, everything we say, everything even that we think has an effect beyond ourselves. And it's, you know, I've been thinking about this, again, in a more political sense from, from, me, from me personally. I don't know where to put my energy politically. I don't really know anymore. You know, I started off as a communist. I went slightly further left for a while. Came back. I decided that the Labour Party was probably a better way of working because it was within the establishment. So I joined the Labour Party. And this is a long time ago. I got involved in certain issue-based kind of things, campaigns like gender, obviously. I was quite involved in the women's movement. Gay things, gay rights, etc. So they were kind of like single-issue things, which had brought its own uh, discomfort in a way. But I kind of have always been somebody that's believed that you can act in the world and make it a better place. 
I don't know how to do it anymore. I don't know where to put it. I don't know where to put my energy and my care and my concern, at least in a political sense. I joined the Greens a few years ago. I don't know. I don't know if that's the case. I mean, anyway, people choose to do all sorts of things. And I think it's important that we are living in some way in relationship with our values, whatever that looks like. Whether it just means recycling, just recycling, but whether that's the way it goes or whether it goes along people going out and working. Uh, do you remember that bit on the clip with Mogalila uh, doing the Street Angels? You know, it's a very particular way of kind of responding to what she sees as an issue that needs addressing. That might be the kind of thing we choose to do, or it might be we write letters to an MP or all sorts of things, or it might be that we don't do any of those things, but we're conscious of the effect that we're having on our neighbours, that we're having on the next people next door. You know, we have an effect all the time. And I think one of the things that I've felt very unsure about is where are the principles in politics these days you know I used to I used to understand where things were located and I don't feel I do anymore and if I go, you know going back to that referendum last week the campaigns were dreadful you couldn't apply the word debate to most of what I read and saw it's an insult to you know it, it was based on lies and misinformation on both sides, I, th I suspect, you know. It's like, where are the principles and things? Where do we put our values? Where can I go? Where can I go? With answers in a postcard. <laughs> the Buddhist centre. That's right. But I think it's really important that we share our Buddhist values or our values as humans, that we share them with people, that we don't hold back and we don't feel we can only share them in a very small way. And one of the things that, you know, I've been, there's been an, apparently a massive rise in hate crimes since Friday. And I was reading this thing today. That is it's so appalling. And you probably know people who are feeling very vulnerable right now. There's probably somebody in your street. There's probably somebody in the shop that you go to for your bread. There's probably people you're in contact with who are feeling very scared and vulnerable right now. They might have no need to. But that's probably what they're feeling. One of the women that we live with from Germany, and on Friday she went into a little town near Adistana, and she said it was the first, or Saturday, she said it was the first time she'd felt German. You know, she suddenly felt she was asking for things in the shop, and she started wondering why the people were looking at her differently and stuff. Now, she might have been, that might have been in her own mind rather than anywhere else, but I'm sure she's not alone in the feeling of that. So one request I have for all of us is can we reach out to people when we see that, really reach out to them? You know, if you, if you can imagine somebody's feeling vulnerable, just reassure them, at least to the extent that you can. Anyway... <clears throat> So going back to Banti's rally call, Sangharachita's rally call, where he says, withdraw our energy. I think there's a lot of we can do about that. It doesn't mean just ignoring what's happening around us. It means making very careful choices about where we put our money, <laughs> our energy, our time. And we can live much more simply, most of us. You know, it's, that's quite a strong thing that we can do.
We can challenge the paradigms that we see around us. We can challenge when we see people acting out of racism or homophobia, anything like that. We can challenge it. You know, there are ways of doing that that actually can bring you into relationship. So going back to Cooper's verses, he says, Simplify, clear away the dead wood in your life, look for the heart wood, and give it the first call in your time. So I guess what I'm hearing from that is find what's really important. What are the values that really, really are important for you? And are you living from them? And are you sharing them and bringing them into relationships? Sorry, I had this sense slightly harangy. I don't mean it to be harangy. I'm saying it to myself as well. You know, really trying to find ways of bringing those, those values into relationship. Vegetarianism, veganism, how we, how we shop, you know? How we shop is extraordinary. Yeah, I don't need to say much more. I made another little vow a while back that I was going to for a year only buy things from second-hand shops or accept gifts. So I've been doing that for a while. I did buy, um, I did buy this because I was going somewhere cold and nobody gifted it to me and I couldn't find anything in the, the shops, the second-hand shops, so I did buy that. But other than that and a few other things that I prefer to buy first-hand rather than second-hand, uh, I've been trying to kind of do that, partly because I don't have very much money, but also partly because I do want to kind of upcycle. And the kind of money that I can spend, if I spend it on new clothes, it's almost certainly been made in some you know, um, in Bangladesh or China or, and under less than salubrious conditions. So just things like that, we can become more a bit more aware. He, you had a film the other night here, didn't you, that... Yeah, Naomi Klein. You know, there are things out there that we can educate ourselves about the effect that, um, that our, our buying power can have on people. And then again, talking about uh, Akupa's um, verses, I love this, I really totally love this. These are maybe my favourite bits. When you see weapons of hate, disarm them with love. It's so gorgeous. Does anybody here ever remember a children's book called A Wrinkle in Time? I've hardly ever met anybody else that's read that book. You know? And it was a formative part of my childhood. <laughs> and um, it's a science fiction, but it was the first science fiction book I ever read. It's a kid's book. And it's about this family. Oh, anyway, basically, the bit near the end, there's a little girl and she's trying to save her little brother from the evil forces of this brain that's trying to suck him in. And she's standing there hating this brain. And it's just getting worse. Her little brother's getting pulled more and more and more towards his brain in a vat. Very philosophical. And um, she remembers a gift. She's given three gifts by these strange old ladies that she meets. And one of the gifts is very... Well, she's given two gifts that are material things. And the other gift, this lady says to her, you'll know what it is when you need it. And she sort of, it suddenly comes back to her and she knows the gift is love. So rather than hating the brain, she turns and just loves her little brother. And her little brother responds to her, and the brain just can't handle it. <laughs> so it has a happy ending. Although there's a few other books in the series that go a bit funny. But something about not responding to hatred with hatred and responding with love is very disarming. It really does disarm. 
when people expect to be met by a kind of polarised response and you don't, it takes the carpet. It's worth it just to see their face. Oh, no, that's not the right attitude. <laughs> but it is very sort of, it is disarming. When you see armies of greed, meet them in the spirit of sharing. That also, you know, just trying to really combat these very um, narrow holding together by trying to, to open it. When you find yourself enshrouded in dark clouds of dread, dispel them with fearlessness. So really trying to cultivate fearlessness. And these are all Buddhist values. Fearlessness, sharing, love. They're all things that we're cultivating all the time, but bringing them into relationship with the world. And when you see the fortresses of narrow-mindedness, breach them with truth. That's so important, isn't it? And yet sometimes quite hard. Sometimes quite hard to know what the truth is about something. Anyway, I think it's, uh, this is looking at how can we come together and create radical alternatives because it isn't enough just to try to dismantle something. It's important to have something positive to offer. And I think we're in a very good position to, to try and do that. So finally, the Dharma response. Well, I think the first thing to do is try and understand the law of conditionality. That things don't just arise in a vacuum, you know. The Twin Towers weren't hit just because somebody woke up one morning and thought, I think today I might go and bomb somewhere. There's a whole background to why people end up in those places and in those states. She's in no way condoning the actions, but I think we need to have a bigger perspective as to what leads to actions. And similarly in our own much smaller sort of spheres, when somebody's acting in a way that's hurtful, I can either respond by defending or I can really try and be curious as to what's happening and what is behind this person acting in this way. So I think really trying to understand conditionality is crucial. Uh, one of the things we often do, and I've done in a lot of the Buddhist communities that I've lived in over the years, is listen to people's life stories. And there is something really, really amazing about hearing somebody's life story. And it opens something up, in my experience. And I, I remember years and years ago hearing somebody talking in a life story and uh, she was from a very different background from me, very sort of, you know, and I just told my horror story, life story, <clears throat> you know, all the abuse and the drugs and all this. And then this other person gave hers the week after and it, to be honest, on the surface it sounded like her biggest problem was that she couldn't become a member of the pony club. And I, I could feel myself just going, you know, you think you've got problems, you know? But actually, when I listened a bit more deeply, I could see all sorts of things in that person's background and conditioning that had led to all sorts of things that I currently found slightly irritating in living with, you know? And they were only irritating because they rubbed up against me and because I'm the much more important person in the universe, it was slightly irritating. But kind of opening up to where that person had come from and the effect of certain things in her background completely changed the way I was responding to her. So there's something really lovely about understanding what brings people to be where they are and who they are that kind of just shifts our perspective. 
And I think understanding the conditions of the world around us, but also understanding that we are part of those conditions. I think sometimes we understand it in a slightly abstracted or even alienated way. But actually, as everything arises and passes, so too do we arise and pass. Our mental states arise and pass. Everything does, but every moment gives birth to the next. So in the same way that whatever's happening is a result of past, whether it's action consciously, whether it's thought, whether it's in a much more um, biological level or in a much more kind of um, impersonal level, everything that's arising right now in this very minute, the way you're sitting, right this minute is because of how you're feeling, it's because of the work day you had at work, it's to do with we can go back and back and see all the things that bring us into this moment, but it's also important to remember that this moment is the opening out to all these next moments, and also my moment opening out will impact on somebody else's moment opening out, because I sound like the incredible string band which you're all probably far too young to remember there's a song of theirs which says this moment is something and I can't remember. Anyway, I think it's really important to think, to, to understand that we arise in dependence upon conditions. That's not only true of me and you, it's true of world phenomena. It's true of what's happening in the country, it's true of what's happening in every bit of the world. It's all arising in dependence upon conditions. And somehow having that perspective can help, I think, bring air into it almost, if you know what I mean. Can help kind of just make it, it's easier to hold almost. And also remembering that we are part of the conditions that, that create the world around us. Our actions will have consequences. And we live in a very complex world. You can't always see, it's never linear, it's seldom linear. We can't always see, I act like this and this is the effect that it's going to have. It's often much, much more complex than that. So let's try and act with the best will in the world so that the consequences will be the best consequences, even if we don't see them and we don't know quite what they are. So I'm going to finish now by evoking two bodhisattvas, if I may. So is everybody familiar with the concept of bodhisattvas? Because I'm not quite sure what, you know, why the people are here. Buddhism class, you've all been around for a while. Okay, I'm going to evoke two bodhis bodhisattvas to finish. Because bodhisattvas are archetypes, but they're archetypes of qualities that we need. Each of the bodhisattvas that we might see depicted iconographically are um, are sim symbolizing or holding uh, particular qualities like fearlessness, like compassion, like wisdom. But they're not just abstract things. We might visualize them in that way or imagine them in that way, partly to open ourselves up to those particular qualities. But also, you know, there are hu human bodhisattvas, and we can each and every one of us attempt to be that to the extent that we can. Because I do believe it's what the world needs. More than politicians, the world needs bodhisattvas. What would be really great would be to have some bodhisattva politicians. <laughs> 
but at the very least some bodhisattvas out there affecting the world so we need the bodhicitta we need that desire to really work not just for our own well-being but to create the conditions where all beings can see the arising and passing of conditions and all beings can act in accordance with that what a world that would be anyway I went to evoke two archetypal bodhisattvas I went to evoke Padmasambhava and Avalokiteshvara and then I'll finish so Padmasambhava I'm going to evoke in quite a long winded way and Avalokiteshvara in a very short and succinct way so Padmasambhava is a symbol of transformation and energy the kind of energy that we need to go into the world and make changes and what I'm going to do is quote quite a long quote from another talk of Sangharakshita's given in 1979 and in this case I was actually there it was given at the LBC in East London and uh, it was a talk to celebrate Padmasambhava Day and it was um, also there was there's a crest at the LBC where two deer in the Dharma Chakra and that was being unveiled it was like a big festival day loads and loads of people it was the year before I got ordained so I was terribly excited I'd had been to give a couple of talks but this was like a really big exciting talk and it was amazing it's on Free Buddhist Audio and in fact you can actually get it as a you can get it as a transcript or you can listen to it I can't, it's quite long and Banti just stood there with no notes and he just talked for about an hour and a half and he just evoked this amazing world of Padmasambhava I think everybody in the room was like somewhere else during this talk well I certainly was and he talks, it's, quite, it's long and it's quite complex and he talks about four different things that are needed um, and Padmasambhava comes up near the end as one of those things which is a terton which find in the treasures Vimala Mati is probably much more of an expert than me on this because she's a Padmasambhava devotee so she can help me out if I need it anyway there's a bit where he talks about um, th- this is him talking about Padmasambhava in a very particular way so part of the story in the life and liberation of Padmasambhava which is a couple of great big thick books um, is a character a, a, a character a, a, a being called Sar- Tarpanagpur who kind of represents all these forces of darkness that we're talking about and he, it's pretty graphic the things he does he eats various his mother for example and all sorts of other things it's very kind of um, like you think the Greek myths are bloody there's some good stuff in this if you like this kind of thing it's really kind of it's amazing anyway Banti read big chunks of it during this talk so this is he's re- this is what he's referring to in this, this quote so again just let it wash over you it's quite long I remember in this connection Quite a few years ago, shortly after I'd started the FWBO, a friend was driving me through the city of London. Now, I'd never been driven through the city of London before. In fact, I'd never even been to the city of London before. Uh, I'd probably gone there when I was very young, but this was probably my first time as an adult, this drive through the city of London. When I say the city, I mean the city with a capital C where the stock exchange is and where all the banks are and that sort of thing so as we drove through I looked from side to side 
skyscraper to the right, skyscraper to the left, bank to the right, bank to the left, bank ahead of me. All these big ponderous buildings, all connected with money, all connected with high finance, and all connected with power. And I said to this friend, referring to the FWBO, this is what we're up against. Because this is one of the demons. So in the life and liberation, there's quite a lot of talk about different kind of demons that Padmasambhava has to confront. This sort of power, this money out of control, is way out of control of the spiritual principle. These are economic demons. And there are social demons. There are sociological demons. There are political demons. There are even religious demons. Not to speak of the odd philosophical demon. And all need to be brought under control. So we must not think these demons are just sort of mythological things that you can read about in a fairy story type of way. All very nice and you'll never really meet a demon. Well, you are meeting demons all the time of one kind or another. We live in a world of demons. So what does this mean? Well, this is still Bante, still quoting Bante. If you look at it carefully, if you want to express it in a few words, you will find the remedy where you find the disease. The remedy is found in the depths of the disease itself. If you plunge deeply into the body, so to speak, of Tarpanagpur, you will find the treasure. You do not have to go outside the world to find the transcendental. You must go very deeply into the world. You utilize the forces of the world. You utilize the energy. You integrate energies of the world with yourself. And this is the spiritual life. You dig deep into the festering, gigantic, foul body of Tarpanagpur, and there you'll find treasure. So this is, this is still Bante, I told you it was a long quote. This is the sort of thing we need to do. We have to think of ourselves as living in a world of rather scattered energies, and we have to claim them and collect them and bring them all together incorporate them into the spiritual life so that our individual spiritual life is reinforced and the collective spiritual life is also reinforced. So, last paragraph. We have to go out in various directions. This is what we do in our centres. This is what we do with our centres, our communities and our co-ops. These are all ways of contacting different aspects of life and transforming them and transfiguring them. It's a sort of transforming and transfiguring agency. I know this is quite a long quote, but it's quite, I find it quite a crucial one. And if it's too much to take in, you can always go and listen to the talk or get the transcript. So he carries on saying, our Buddhist movement is not simply a Buddhist movement in a narrow sense, not even a spiritual movement in a narrow sense. It's a stream of spiritual energy transforming, deeply transforming and transfiguring everything and everyone with whom it comes into contact.
So this is what Padma Sambhava does. He encounters a god, he transforms it. He encounters a demon, he transforms it. Encounters a dakini, transforms her. And this is the sort of thing we must do. We must allow ourselves to be in contact with energy. And if we're strong enough not to flee from that, then we'll find the deeper energies within ourselves and transform them to go forward along the path with renewed energy, strength and inspiration. So what I take from that is when I started, you know, I woke up on Friday morning, I heard the results, I personally felt angry, upset and despairing. I've got choices about what I do with that. I can sink into it further. I can talk to all my friends that feel the same and do a bhavana, practice on it and make it worse. Or I can evoke the energies of Padmasambhava and I can try and stay clean and clear and look towards how can I bring my values into relationship with the world. So let's evoke Padmasambhava. But also we're going to finish by evoking Avalokiteshvara. And to evoke Avalokiteshvara, I'm just going to tell you the mantra. Om Mani Padme Hung. Om Mani Padme Hung. Most mantras aren't translatable, but Avalokiteshvara's mantra is. So we leave the Om and the Hung. The Mani Padme, Mani Padme, Mani Padme is the jewel in the lotus. And what that represents, the lotus is the unfolding of our nascent spiritual qualities. And that lotus can arise from mud. It's one of the beauties of the symbol of the lotus. It can grow anywhere. It can grow in the most unfortunate of conditions. And when it opens within it, there's a jewel. And that jewel is our jewel. It's our bodhicitta. It's our belief that we can transform self and world. But not only that, but every jewel is unique. So within every being, as they open, as their little lotus opens in the mud of their conditions, we'll find their sparkling jewel. So let's evoke the energies of Padmasambhava to help us combat those mental states that drag us away from our path, but also remembering that every being Going right back to where I started, that polarization, that really distress and dividedness that's so prevalent at the moment. If we can, each of us, let our jewel shine, but also recognize the jewel in every other being, so that the jewels, if I may shift metaphors, can sing to each other, so that the jewels can dance with each other, then I think we have got a way of engaging. We have got a path of engagement, and we can actually change the world. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you.